All right, good to see everybody. Can I have you guys turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 5? Before we get into chapter 5, let me give you a little background. Nebuchadnezzar died on October 7th, 562 B.C. Daniel was about 86 or 87 years old at that time, and he had been in retirement for a number of years. When Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom began to deteriorate. He was succeeded by his son, Evil Maradoc. <laughs> Names are Kid Evil. Uh, kid Evil, I guess. But he was succeeded by his son, Evil Maradoc, who reigned two years before he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neraglisser, in 560. Neraglisser reigned for four years, and after he died of natural causes, his young son, Labashi Marak, Labashi Marduk, I should say, was put on the throne, but he only reigned for a couple of months before he too was murdered by a band of conspirators, including one Nabonidus, who was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of times back then, these royal weddings were arranged, and uh, it was to solidify power in some way, and many believe that Nabonidus married uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter to, to kind of um, uh, strengthen his claim to the throne, which became his in 556. Now, Nabonidus reigned from 556 to 539, uh, up until the time Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon, which we'll see tonight. But Nabonidus didn't even live in Babylon. In fact, it was 13 out of the 16 years he reigned, he never even set foot in the city. Why was that? Well, he, was, uh, he spent a lot of time uh, away from the city in battles. He was very much all over the place uh, fighting battles. And so what he did was he appointed his son Belshazzar as co-regent of the city of Babylon and also second in command of the entire kingdom. Now, liberal scholars and historians alike for years uh, challenge this by saying the book of, the book of Daniel was an error. Uh, you can't trust the Bible, okay? Uh, because right here we know that, uh, you know, there is no record of anybody ever reigning in Babylon named Belshazzar. I mean, secular history says at this time, Nabonidus was the king of Babylon. And so you have the Bible says something different from secular history. Who is right? Which one is right? Nobody knew how to reconcile these accounts. But archaeology is our greatest friend as Christians. In 1854, a British council named J.G. Taylor was exploring some of the ruins in southern Iraq for the British Museum and came across four cuneiform cylinders in the foundation of a ziggurat uh, at Ur, Ur of the Chaldees or Babylon. Now, cuneiform is a special way of writing. Uh, it's, uh, they, they have a, a special tool, and uh, it's pressed down into the clay, uh, which eventually hardens, making these um, triangular-shaped letters. And they would often do this on cylinders. You can Google cuneiform cylinders and see a whole bunch of these. That they have found, all right? But uh, he found these four cylinders as he was excavating uh, this ziggurat, uh, the foundation thereof. And uh, after examining them, they found out these were actually put there by Nabonidus himself. And all four of them apparently had the same identical inscription. It turned out that the inscription had been written at the command of Nabonidus. Uh, they commemorated these four cylinders the repair of a temple tower at Ur, and uh, they contained a prayer for the long life and good health of Nabonidus and, guess what, his eldest son, 
Belshazzar. So now we had historical verification of what the Bible has been saying for centuries. At this point, pastor and author David Jeremiah adds this, and I quote, These cylinders cleared up the problem. There were two kings of Babylon during Daniel's later life, a father and a son. Nabonidus, who occupied a stronghold outside the city, and his eldest son, Belshazzar, as co-regent. He allowed him to use the royal title. Belshazzar was slain while defending the city. Nabonidus was spared. This detail explains Daniel 5, verse 29, where it says, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in a purple robe, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He was the third ruler because there were already two others, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, unquote. So once again, the Bible critics have to slink away with their tails between their legs, all right? Now listen, guys, as we enter into Daniel chapter 5, at least 23 years has elapsed between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. You must realize that during that time, Daniel chapter 7 and 8 took place. The first six chapters are chronological. The last seven are prophetic, and they are interspersed within the time frame of the first six chapters, basically. So in this 23-year interlude between the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, Daniel chapter 7 and 8 took place. Uh, they took place in the first and third years of Belshazzar's reign. Chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us. Now, from the king's dream in chapter 2 and the vision in chapter 7, Daniel knew that the Medes and the Persians would conquer the city and would succeed Babylon as the next world-governing empire. In fact, four months before Babylon fell, the Medes and Persians had pretty much conquered all the territory except the city itself. And uh, Belshazzar and his uh, leaders were holed up in the city. They were, they were held up in the city because they believed the walls of the city were invincible, making them untouchable. We've talked about the walls surrounding the city of Babylon. Gigantic place, 15 miles in each direction. The wall, outer wall was 350 feet high. Every so many feet there was a tower that raised up another 100 feet. 450 foot above ground was a watchtower all around the city. Uh, the first wall, outer wall, was 88 feet thick. As we said, they had chariot races uh, six abreast on that wall. Then there was an uh, um, inner moat and then another wall beyond that. So you can imagine why they felt invincible. Plus, they knew that the Medes and the Persians were coming eventually to lay siege on the city. So they uh, stockpiled a 20-year supply of food. Plus, the Euphrates River ran right through the center of the city, giving them an inexhaustible supply of water. You can see why they felt invincible. Now, Belshazzar was only 14 years old when his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, built his 90-foot-tall golden image that we studied in chapter 3 in defiance of a prophecy that God gave to Daniel. As Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, you remember, he said, you're the head of gold, but you're going to be replaced by another kingdom, the, arm, the shoulders and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, and then, of course, after the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and so on, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that idea. So in chapter 3, he builds for himself a 90-foot statue image, all of gold. 
in defiance of the God of Israel who said, no, you're going to be replaced. You're the head of gold, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but you, your kingdom is going to be replaced by another kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire. He didn't like that. So he makes an image all of gold and says, look, my kingdom is never going to come to an end. I don't care what the God of Israel says. So, so uh, Belshazzar was only 14 years old when uh, that took place. As we then saw in chapter 3, Daniel was away on the affairs of state, no doubt. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar erects this image, demands everybody fall down when the music starts to worship this thing. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's buddies, refused to do that. And uh, they were loyal only to the God of Israel. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar got so furious with them, he finally had them thrown into the fiery furnace. We remember the story. God spared them and uh, protected them and when they came out of the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he uh, issued a decree that all the world had to respect the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, then in chapter 4, as we studied last time, we believe Nebuchadnezzar actually got saved. And uh, chapter 4 contains his own personal testimony written with his own hand about how he got saved and... Um, he wanted all the peoples of the world to know that uh, he had now put his faith in the God of, of Israel and uh, wanted everyone to worship this God and, uh, and offered him praise uh, for his sovereignty and great power. That was chapter 4. However, and unfortunately, guys, our children don't always follow in our faith, which was true for Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, who treated the God of Israel with arrogant, listen, arrogant, disrespect. Belshazzar at one point during this, you know, Bacchanalian feast that he threw in the city commanded that the sacred vessels of gold and silver be brought uh, into the banquet hall. These golden vessels, uh, gold and silver vessels were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. These were holy instruments. Everything in the temple was called holy. What does that mean? It was only to be used in the worship of God. That's what holy meant, dedicated. All right, set apart, we're holy in the sense that we have been set apart for God's exclusive use. We are to live our lives for his glory. Well, everything in the temple, every instrument, every cup, every shovel, pan, uh, whatever it might be, were all holy. They were only to be used in the worship of God. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered uh, Jerusalem, he, uh, as was the custom of these pagan kings, he took he, he ransacked the temple of the God of Israel, took all these things back to Babylon, and now his grandson Belshazzar said, bring out the golden cups and the silver cups that me and my wives and, our, and the Babylonian lords might drink wine out of them, defiling them. This was a direct insult, blasphemy, against the God of Israel. And it was uh, Belshazzar's way of saying that even though we are surrounded by the Persian Medo-Persian army, we're so confident that Babylon will never fall. We don't care what the God of Israel says. We're going to throw a big drunken party to prove it. Because we're not worried a bit. Well, let's see how all that worked out. Verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king 
And his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So they were just really sticking a finger in the eye of the God of Israel. All right? Because Belshazzar knew all of this. He knew what his grandfather, uh, the dreams that his grandfather had. He knew how the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Daniel had interpreted those dream, uh, that dream to mean you know, what we just said and, and all. And he's basically defying the God of Israel by saying, look, I don't care what he says. Babylon's never going to fall. I don't care if the Medes and Persians are outside the gates of the city, uh, the walls of the city. They'll never get in here. We're, we're, we're confident of that. Now, look, from what I understand, these Oriental despots love to have these large, lavish banquets. It was a way to kind of show off their wealth and power. Interestingly, in Babylon, they have uncovered, the, through excavation, a large court. They uncovered a room, and um, it, was, it measured 56 feet by 170 feet, and it was decorated with Greek columns. Probably this was the room where the feast took place in Daniel 5. That's what the archaeologists and scholars believe. But listen, uh, verse 2 says that, uh, that uh, Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather, and uh, rather than his son, in the Hebrew language as well as in the Aramaic, uh, there isn't a word for grandfather or grandson. And so any ancestor was referred to as a father, and any male descendant uh, was referred to as a son. So don't let that throw you. That's just the way it worked, okay? You could be a great-grandson, great-great-grandson. You were just called the son of, okay? Verse 5, in the same hour, is there, you know, they're partying and all, and, they're, and I'm sure there's a lot of immoral things happening there because that's the way they did it in these pagan feasts. But in the same hour, the fingers of a man appeared and I'm wondering if they came right up out of one of these cups, okay? That's kind of how, how I've always uh, envisioned it. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. Uh, you know, he wasn't uh, so merry. His countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. I love it. Uh, the King James even a little better. Uh, his, uh, his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. Now, you can't improve on that. All right. Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke to the wise men of Babylon. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Is it just me or are these guys useless? I mean, they can't do anything. Every time they're called, they're like, okay, read this or interpret this. Was, I don't know what they were getting paid for. So verse 9, the king, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished, or the Hebrews, or the um, Aramaic is perplexed. The, uh, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. The queen mentioned here in verse 10 is probably the queen mother, Belshazzar's mom rather than one of his wives. As we saw in verse 2, his wives and concubines had already been participating in the banquet with him at this time, but now here enters a woman, seems for the first time. And so she, you know, if she was one of his wives, she would have been there from the beginning. And she enters uh, late in the feast, or at least when things were really getting going, and um, she also speaks to the king, not like a wife, but kind of in, in, the, in the terms of a mother, like a mother would. And also she had the personal knowledge of Daniel's interpreting of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of what we call chapter 2, many years earlier. And so because she seems to have firsthand knowledge of this, see, Daniel's been in retirement for years. This new generation, Belshazzar, has no idea who Daniel is. Okay, I mean... He maybe have heard the name, probably never met the guy. This, this new generation, they had no idea who this guy was. And so his mom says, look, when your dad was, your grandfather was in charge, he had a man that so impressed him because the spirit of God and wisdom and all was in him, who could interpret dreams and, and solve riddles and, and enigmas. And he made him head of all the wise men of Babylon. You need to call him. And so they had to go find Daniel, you know, wake him up. Because, you know, they're all partying. It's probably in the wee hours of the morning. He's probably in bed at 9 o'clock, like most of us who are getting up there, right? I'm not quite that bad. Not 9 o'clock, but... Um, so, you know, she has seems to have a lot of pull with him, which is not what a wife would have had, but a queen mother would have had. In fact, one author says, the queen mother was often a significant figure who exerted considerable influence in the, in the uh, in ancient courts. This woman proceeded to do for... Belshazzar, what Arioch had done for Nebuchadnezzar, namely bring Daniel to the king's attention. And so, guys, as they sent messengers to call Daniel to appear before the king to interpret the handwriting on the wall, while that was going on inside the city, listen, outside the city, King Cyrus and the Medo Persian Empire, uh, Medo Persian army were hard at work. What do you mean? Well. What happened was, now they're all partying inside the city, completely confident the Medo-Persian army, which is outside the walls, are never going to breach the walls of the city, never going to attack, be able to come into the city to attack them. So Cyrus, what he does is he takes a group of his best guys, divides them into two, places one company on the north end of the city, outside the city walls, where the Euphrates River entered the city, and takes the other group and puts them to the south of the city where the Euphrates River's River exits the city. And then he takes the rest of his army and he goes to the place where the Euphrates is where it passes a huge swamp and has his guys dig a channel, a very large channel, that channeled water from the Euphrates to this swamp. And as they did that, of course, brilliant, very ambitious thing, these, uh, these guys were very very much into winning, all right? And uh, so as they dug this channel, it began to divert 
water from the Euphrates to this swamp, and as it did, the water of the Euphrates began to recede. And it receded so much so that the soldiers could then walk on the riverbed. Completely oblivious were the people inside the city. They had no idea this was going on. And of course, uh, Cyrus told his guys, look, when the water begins to recede, you guys to the north of the city, wait until you can touch the bottom of the riverbed and walk on the riverbed. Uh, and you guys on the south side of the city, same thing. And when the water recedes far enough where you can actually touch the, the bottom of the river and you can walk on the riverbed, start coming into the city. The problem, guys, the problem was, what about the bronze and iron gates that went down into the riverbed? I mean, you know, that was the, you know, you could bring the water down, but you still had these iron and bronze gates to deal with. How are they going to get in through these gates? Well, history tells us when they finally reached the gates, they were left open. They were left open. And they were shocked. And so they were able to enter into the city, and they conquered it, guys, without a fight. Since everybody inside was partying, nobody was watching, all right? They were all partying, so they were caught by surprise. Uh, they were easily defeated because they didn't really expect. They were overconfident, is the idea. Uh, flushed with sin, immorality, overconfidence, and uh, they were caught by surprise and easily defeated. You say, but yes, but what about those gates? How were they possibly left open? Well, I'll let you wrestle with that. However, I'll give you a little bit of insight from the Scriptures. Turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, listen, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. So apparently it was not just the gates. There were a set of double doors that were also left open. And then these iron and bronze gates. Now did God literally tear them to pieces? Or is it just his way of saying there won't be a problem? I don't know. But it sounds to me like God himself, probably an angel, had gone before the... Uh, Medo-Persian army, and had purposely caused the gate. You know, remember how when Peter was uh, arrested in the book of Acts, and they put him in the dungeon, and the next morning, because they had just martyred James. And so everyone liked that, so they thought, well, maybe we'll just go ahead and martyr Peter the next day. And so he was chained to four guards, and in the middle of the night, an angel came, woke him up, uh, the chains fell off of him, and the gates opened up to them as they started walking through the city. The gates by themselves just opened. God can, of course, can do that. And so it seems like the Lord went before them and opened all the doors, all the gates, to make sure the army was able to get into the city. Jeremiah 51, turn there briefly. Now remember, these were written years before the events that took place. In Jeremiah 51, verse 57, we read, now God is talking about this very event in the fall of Babylon, verse 57, I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors, her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. So, you know, it's not like God made them drink, 
But, you know, whatever the Lord did, he allowed them to get that thought in their head. You know, the Bible says the, uh, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like, in like the rivers of water, he can turn it wheresoever he wishes, you know. I mean, the Lord can just turn and say, look, you know, cause these guys to think, hey, let's throw a party. And God said, look, I'm going to use this drunken party that they have entered into of their own free will. I'm going to use it against them because they're so cocky. They're so overconfident. They're, you know, poking a finger in my eye, so to speak, uh, claiming, no, I don't care what you said, uh, say God of Israel. We're never going to fall. And so God, pride goes before a fall. So God uh, allowed them to get drunk, fall asleep. And like I said, none of them even put up a resistance when the Medo-Persian army entered the city. Jeremiah 51, verse 11, again, talking about this um, conquering of the Babylonian Empire and the city of Babylon in particular. Verse 11, Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the king of the Medes, for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Part of the reason that God, and, and hang on to that, what God is talking about here is destroying its power, not necessarily destroying its, the city itself. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it at the end of the study. But part of the reason God was bringing judgment against uh, the city of Babylon was because uh, how that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, destroyed the temple and took all the vessels uh, that were holy back to Babylon. Of course, he got saved. And if his descendants would have walked in his ways and also repented, who knows what the Lord might have done, might have spared the city. But because Belshazzar picked up where his pagan grandfather left off, you know, before Nebuchadnezzar got saved, uh, and was now mocking the God of Israel, God says, you know what, uh, judgment is coming. Well, back to Daniel 5, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you the Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah? See, he's never met this guy. All right, that's why I say he, he had no idea who Daniel was. Are you the Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. Uh, but they could not give the interpretation uh, of the thing. And I heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, you know, king... <laughs> Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Guys, let me just say this. Daniel was, by every definition, a godly, spirit-filled guy. One of my favorite people in the entire Bible. This guy was the real deal. And let me just say this to you. Men and women of God who are the real deal, spirit-filled, they are not impressed by the world's recognition and honor, nor do they covet or desire the world's riches. All we want to do, who are men and women of God, who love the Lord, spirit-filled, all we want to do is serve the Lord and bring glory to his name. We understand what Jesus said. 
That which is highly esteemed by the world is an abomination to God. And so Daniel is saying, King, keep your, your honors, keep your, your rewards. Um, you know, I'm not really impressed by that stuff, okay? But look, I know God has put you in power, and I'm going to serve you like I did your grandfather. I'm going to go ahead and interpret the writing on the wall. But, he, but before he does that, he gently rebukes this young monarch. I mean, Daniel's 87 years old. What does he care? What does he care? All right, what's he got to lose, basically? All right? um, so he's going to get a shot into this guy. And, and basically, he gently rebukes him, not only for his carnality, which was legendary, but for blasphemy and how he blasphemed the God of heaven, the very God that his grandfather had one, at one point had come to believe in and had purposed in, to live in honor to the God of Israel. Well, verse 18, Daniel begins, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that, that uh, he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. He was an absolute ruler, as we've said. He didn't have to get approval from anybody. What he wanted to do, he just did it. And nobody could question him because he was the absolute authority in the kingdom. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast's, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed uh, him with grass like an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew. This was seven years went on that he was like this. Uh, until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, or his grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Your grandfather humbled his heart. But you haven't humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He knew the story. He was not ignorant. It wasn't that he was ignorant of what happened to his grandfather. He just, I mean, I'm sure he heard of Daniel, uh, but didn't know who he was and so on. Uh, but uh, Daniel is telling him, now look, your grandfather was humble. And he accepted the humbling and repented. But uh, you haven't repented. You haven't humbled your heart, even though you knew your grandfather's testimony. Verse 23, And you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, concubines, have drunk wine. For, you've desecrated them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified you know from the very first day i read that verse i've never forgotten it I mean, there's a lot of verses that i can't tell you i remember off the top of my head i've never ever forgotten this statement and i think everybody every person should take it to heart listen that each breath we take is a gift from god is a gift from god which means every second of our lives are in the sovereign hand of god Every second of our lives are in the sovereign hand of God. 
Look, he is the author and giver of life. The Bible clearly says that. And at any time, he can withdraw the breath of life from any one of us if we sin against him, as he will do here shortly with Belshazzar and many years later with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Now, let me just say this to you. Not everyone who dies young, they die young maybe through an accident or some kind of a heart attack or something. It doesn't mean God is judging sin in their life. We, we hope you understand that. I'm not saying that. There are a lot of very godly people who die young and some very wicked people who live to be quite old. I'm just saying, though, there are times when God will take a person who is dishonoring him, who is uh, living in such sin or rebellion, um, that he will take their lives off of the earth. He can do it with a heart attack or a stroke or through some other means. But let me just say this. It's a lot healthier, if I could put it that way, if we live our lives to honor God. <laughs> so it's a lot healthier. Because, you know, those people who live in such a way as to bring reproach on his name, well, tomorrow is not promised to anybody. And God could, you know, God has given them the breath of life. He can take it away anytime. Well, Daniel 5, verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. Daniel is talking about this now. And this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Yepharzin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Let me just go over that one more time. Mini, mini, tekel, eupharzin. The you in eupharzin is the word and. So it's mini, mini, tekel, and farsin. Farsin is the plural of perez, P-E-R-E-S. Now you have to understand something. The Aramaic language, like the Hebrew language, didn't use vowels, only consonants. So you had to look at the context and figure out which vowel points went in between the consonants to form what word you believed was intended, okay? Just one string of consonants. They got good at it. That's how they wrote. But the same with the Aramaic. The Hebrew and Aramaic didn't use vowels, only consonants. Now, if you were to take the E's out of Paris, P-E-R-E-S, and put in A's because nobody knew what the vowels were, you could very well be put, have put A's in there, all right? If you would take the E's out and put in A's, you would get the word paras, which is the word for Persia. It's kind of a play on words since there is no, um, it's kind of like both words are kind of included is the idea, all right? And um, the literal translation is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. But we could paraphrase it. It could read like this. Belshazzar, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales of God's justice and have not measured up. Therefore, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the, kind of the idea there. Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Well, that's like being made, <laughs> that's like being made the... Uh, uh, you know, the captain of the Titanic as it's going down, all right? It's not much of an honor, right? I mean, uh, you know, at that very moment, the Medes and the Persians were entering into the city. So uh, verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was 
slain. Now, according to the Nabonidus Chronicle, the date was the 16th of the month of Tishri, which most scholars believe would have been October 12, 539 B.C. Belshazzar was slain that very night. And listen, guys, the head of gold was then replaced with the shoulders and arms of silver. In other words, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians just as God had prophesied through Daniel. What does that tell us? It tells us this. Unbelievers can reject the word of God. Unbelievers can fight against the word of God, but they cannot undo the word of God. I love Ezekiel 36, 36. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Period. Or as Peter would say many centuries later, the word of the Lord endures forever. Here, Nebuchadnezzar initially, no, it's not, never going to happen. I'm going to build my little, no, little 90-foot uh, image of gold to say that Babylon will never fall. That's wishful thinking. There's a lot of people who read God's word and enter into a kind of wishful thinking. Oh, that'll never happen. It's like 27% of the Bible is prophecy. And God said, I think in Isaiah 46, I'm going to tell you things before they happen. So that when they do happen, you know that I am God and this is my word because nobody knows the end from the beginning like I do. In other words, nobody can predict the future and be right every single time like me because I know the future. I'm not guessing, okay? And so people read the Bible and they, you know, if they do any study at all, they realize that hundreds and hundreds of prophecies have come true exactly as God had says. Now, there are a bunch left that haven't come true yet. The book of Revelation is one of them, the coming judgment and so on. But you would think after reading the Bible and re recognizing that everything God has said up to this point has pretty much come true, and whatever's left, well, I would imagine if you have all these other things that have come true without fail, the best thing you can do is say, well, whatever's yet future, I believe that's going to happen as well. Because this is God's word, obviously, He's telling us things that will happen. But a lot of people, they enter into this wishful kind of thinking, well, no, that will never happen. God will never judge the world, blah, blah, blah. You've heard the stories millions of times. And they enter into wishful thinking, and they're not prepared when the judgment finally comes, just like Belshazzar, who knew the testimony of his grandfather, who saw the God of Israel uh, give prophecies and things were coming to pass, but he decided, no, on this one, it's not going to happen. I don't believe it. Never going to happen to this city. And, of course, it fell. Again, verse 30, That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And at this point we say, wait a minute. <laughs> Who is Darius the Mede? One author said, The references to Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel have long been recognized as providing the most serious historical problem in the book. Now, every commentary I checked had something to say on this, a, an explanation of who Darius the Mede actually was. I'm going to give you what Warren Worsby said because I think he had the best take on it, but a lot of other commentary, I got, I've got two dozen commentaries on Daniel, and I go through them all, all right, when I do my study. And many other commentators were saying the same thing that Worsby is saying. Let me read it to you, okay? And um, just so you get an idea, because, well, let me read it to you. 
He said, and I quote, the conquest of Babylon was engineered by Cyrus, king of Persia. Then he gives the quotes out of the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 6, verse 28, chapter 10, verse 1. And then he says, you can also see 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23, and then Ezra chapters 3 to 5. Again, the conquest of Babylon was engineered by Cyrus, king of Persia, who was God's chosen servant for the task. Who then was Darius the Mede, mentioned in Daniel? Many students believe that Darius was Gobaru, an important officer in the army whom Cyrus made ruler of the providence of Babylon. One of the commentators I was reading said, this Gobaru actually served King Belshazzar at one point, but somebody in Belshazzar's administration killed his son. He became so bitter, he went over to the opposing side, joined forces with the Medes and the Persians, and Nodot gave him valuable intel about the best way to maybe attack the city. All right, But many believe that this Gabaro was an important officer in the army of Cyrus, who he made ruler of the providence of Babylon. Darius the Mede, listen, this is important, Darius the Mede must not be confused with Darius I, who ruled from 522 to 486 and encouraged the Jewish remnant in the restoration of the temple as recorded by Ezra and Ezra chapter 1 and chapters 5 and 6. All right, just so you have in your mind a working knowledge of this, because there is no Darius the Mede uh, in history. Now, again, maybe archaeology will prove something yet future. At this point, though, many believe that Darius was another name for this, this general, Gabaru, and uh, he was made because uh, Cyrus could have been so grateful. This guy defected over to his side, gave him valuable intel on how to conquer the city, that when they conquered the city, they made this guy, or he made this guy, the ruler of the city. Uh, but he was under Cyrus, obviously. All right. Now, here's an important footnote to the story. Don't miss this. After the city of Babylon fell, Sixteen days later, on October 29, 539 B.C., Cyrus makes his entry into the city. Took him a few days, okay. Uh, you know, he had his troops uh, mopping up things and so on. In fact, it took, the, it took three days to conquer this city. It was so big. There were people who didn't even realize the city had been conquered until three days later uh, because it was so big, okay. But when Cyrus finally gets to the city and enters it, Guess who's waiting there to greet him? Daniel. And he presented to Cyrus, he presented Cyrus with a scroll of Isaiah, which contained a prophecy that was roughly 200 years old. Turn to Isaiah 44. Keeping in mind, this prophecy was 200 years old, all right? Isaiah 44, starting with verse 27. Now, once again, God is talking about how he was going to conquer the city. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Very thing that happened, okay? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple was in ruins ever since 587 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar in the third 
deportation, had a belly full of all these vassal kings he kept putting in power as he went back to, to Babylon. All these kings he kept putting in power in there in Jerusalem and all. Finally, he takes the armies, 587, takes pretty much everyone who was left away to Babylon and destroys the city, destroys the temple. It's all in ruins, all right? But 200 years, well, actually, uh, 100 years before that, Isaiah, God speaking, calls Cyrus by name and said, You shall build Jerusalem, and my temple, the foundation, shall be laid. Verse 1 of Isaiah 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, He's calling Cyrus his anointed. Why? Because Cyrus is going to serve the purposes of God. He's anointed for this. This is why God allowed him to conquer Babylon. Oh, yeah, Babylon had its own issues uh, and pretty immoral and godless place. But the reason God used Cyrus was because uh, to conquer Babylon was because Cyrus was going to then be used by God to fix what Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. So verse 1, thus says the Lord was anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. Who gives us power to succeed in any walk of life? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And that's being acknowledged right here. To loose the armor of kings, to loose, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you. And make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Now, as Daniel read that prophecy to Cyrus, where God was speaking to him, calling him by name 150 years before he was born, assuming he was about 50 years of age at this time, telling him basically that he was going to be used by God to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, it freaked him out. As God was calling this guy, can you imagine? Here you've just done something. You've just defeated a world empire. Now you are the king of the new world empire. And some old guy comes with a scroll, 200 years old, opens up and says, look, here's, you're written right here. You can imagine the guy was freaked out. In fact, he was so blown away that, and because God said he was going to use him to rebuild the temple and all, he issued a decree allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland and actually gave them money to finance the rebuilding of the temple. The whole book of Ezra deals with that. In fact, let's turn to it. I want to read you four verses out of Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, just read verses 1 to 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. See, he got, I believe he got saved when Daniel opened up the scroll of Isaiah, right? And then, of course, they showed him the scroll of Jeremiah as well. But um, he said, All the kingdoms of the earth the God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. This guy, I'm convinced, got saved. Which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and with goods and livestock. In other words, if you can't go, you're, you, for whatever reason, you can't go back. And many did not go back. We'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. Many stayed in Babylon. The king said, well, if you can't go to rebuild Jerusalem in the temple, at least give for the work. All right? You know, give silver, gold, livestock, besides the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The first group of Jews left to return back to Jerusalem in 536 B.C. That was exactly 70 years after the first deportation where Nebuchadnezzar took the first group to Babylon, including Daniel, his three buddies. That took place in 606 B.C. Seventy years later, 536, the first group of captives returns back to Jerusalem. Now, this was all prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah. Turn to chapter 25. Jeremiah is prophesying this even before the Babylonians came and conquered Israel. He was prophesying for 46 years, and nobody would listen to him. But he said in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it shall come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So that's going to become very important when we study chapter 9. So in a few weeks as we study chapter 9, this prophecy of Jeremiah, where God predicted that the captivity would be 70 years, is going to become very important to Daniel in chapter 9. We'll see that when we get there. Another footnote from history. Even though the city of Babylon was conquered in 539 B.C., it wasn't destroyed then. Guys, it was such a magnificent city, it became the capital of the Persian Empire for the next two centuries. In fact, when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, he made Babylon his capital. In fact, he died there. He died there. All right? Remember he died young, the age of 33. No more worlds left to conquer. He was a conqueror. Everything had been conquered. He turned to drinking, staggered home uh, one rainy night, fell on his bed, caught pneumonia, and died a short time later. He died there in the city of Babylon. Now let me just say this. Commentators have likened the foolishness of Belshazzar with the foolishness of many in our day. How so? Well, here death was literally knocking at his door. In other words, the whole Medo-Persian army was outside the city walls. Uh, Unbeknownst to him, they were penetrating the city at that very moment, right, that he's partying, but he was oblivious. Here he was in mortal danger, not realizing what was going on, and uh, had drunken himself into a drunken stupor. No doubt they, uh, him and his lords were enjoying a lot of uh, base entertainment and so on, uh, not realizing that their lives were about ready to come to an end. One author said, and I quote, At the moment of this greatest of all dangers, 
Belshazzar was drugging himself at his party. Yet it is not only Belshazzar who has done this, our culture is doing it as well. Some time ago, a book by Neil Postman entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business appeared in American bookstores. It was about television and its pernicious effects on our country. It might well have been written about culture at large uh, and have voiced alarm at our spiritual condition by refusing to think especially about eternal realities and by filling our days with entertainment, particularly sin-oriented entertainment, we lose sight of the danger and plunge into the abyss, end quote. That's exactly what's going on in our country today. When the Roman Empire fell, it had begun to decline, and so there was unrest among the people. And one of the solutions was what was called bread and circuses. Make sure the state gives people enough bread to eat, keep them happy, and circuses, entertainment, that they forget about their problems and we can control them. Bread and circuses. Well, while the people were indulging in bread and circuses, the morality was getting lower and lower and lower. And as historians have said, uh, Rome was not conquered from without. It, it decayed from within. It wasn't the Huns that conquered Rome. It was their own base uh, desires and sin conquered the city, uh, the empire from within. We're seeing that in America. Uh, this country is deteriorating from within. It's because of our own immorality. We've turned away from God. We still call ourselves a Christian nation, a nation in God we trust. It's all mottos. It's all nothing. It's words. People are not really living as if God is their king. And as we see in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, every man did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's exactly the testimony of America right now. We have a, a culture that's becoming more and more lawless. And first on the hit list is the laws of God. People want to do whatever they want to do. They want to do their own thing. And so the nation is being dragged down more and more, and eventually our own immorality and idolatry is going to consume us. It may not happen this week or next month or maybe even five years down the road. I don't know. But eventually it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We could adapt the words of Daniel directed at Belshazzar to anyone who is living today like Belshazzar lived back then. You have not humbled your heart, but instead have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. I mean, you can fit a whole bunch of things into that category. Every material thing you can think of fits into there somehow. You've uh, praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. That is the great sad indictment of most of America. Of most of America. The good news is, as long as there is still breath in a person, there is still time to repent and get right with God. It's not until after a person breathes their last breath, there's no more hope. Guys, when cocky, arrogant Belshazzar started his day, he, it probably never crossed his mind that this would be his last day on earth. It wasn't until God wrote on the wall that his days were over, his kingdom was coming to an end, that he realized that... Uh, but he, he could have re even repented then. He didn't do it. And that night he died, totally unprepared to enter into eternity. As I was preparing this message, one of the commentators said, you know... People don't realize 
unbelievers, that just like that finger wrote judgment against Belshazzar, the finger of God is writing on every ledger of every person who has ever lived all their sins in sins of thought, word, and deed. And all of those sins are weighing against them. And on the day of judgment, they will be weighed against them and they will be cast out into eternal darkness. The good news is, when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus takes his blood with his finger and writes on the bottom of their ledger, to Tetelestai, paid in full. That is a wonderful thing to think about. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. But once you receive Christ, you have passed from death to life. You are now hidden in the beloved one. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're a child of God. And we have an eternal inheritance waiting for us that will never fade away. All because we received Christ and he wrote with his own blood on our ledger, your sins have been paid for in full. It is finished to tell us die. Wow. So may God continue to bless these studies in his word because they are powerful and they are very practical in many ways as we're going to see as we continue looking at God willing Daniel chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, Lord, it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. If we will walk in the light of your truth, we'll never stumble in darkness. The devil won't be able to deceive us. And Lord, we will be ready to meet you when the day comes, when you finally say to us, come up here. I want you now with me. And Lord, we wait for that day. It could come at any time. Give us grace to always be watching, working, and um, waiting because the day is coming. We thank you, Lord. Give us grace to be faithful. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.